This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Alan Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening and thank you for joining us on ADH. Tens of thousands are, tell your friends, we say it here as we see it seeing the world as it is, not as some would like it to be. Strap yourself in because we've got one hell of a program for you tonight. But before we get to that, millions of Australians were gripped by the Olympic Games in Tokyo in August 2021. In track and field, people set their alarms to see the young man from Trinity Grammar in Sydney with the mullet, Rowan Browning, in the semi-final of the men's 100. How could you forget it? But then there was the black Australian 800 metre runner, Peter Bowl. A hell of a story. He's 28, he was born in Khartoum in war-ravaged and impoverished Sudan. His mother is Sudanese. The father is from the region that is now South Sudan, where the Pope has just visited, and hundreds of thousands of families there are reeling from escalating fighting and four consecutive years of flooding. Today, nearly two-thirds of South Sudan's 12 million people are grappling with hunger. 43,000 in this majority Catholic country face famine-like conditions. Sudan itself straddles the southern edge of the Sahara Desert. Well, this young man and his family fled the civil war when he was four. At the age of eight, young Peter Boll arrived in Toowoomba. He then grew up in Perth, where he attended a private school on a basketball scholarship. In 2017, he completed a degree in construction management at Curtin University. When he was 16, a teacher at St Norbert College in Perth suggested he try 800 metre running. 10 years ago, he won the Junior Men's 800 metre championship of Australia in 148.9, very quick. He moved from Perth to Melbourne to a new coach, Justin Rinaldi. In 2016, he ran two Olympic qualifying times and qualified for the Rio Olympics, but he didn't get any further than the heats. Then in 2018, he set a personal best time of 144.56, defeating the brilliant training partner, Joseph Deng, also an escapee from the Sudanese Civil War, whose family also had moved to Toowoomba. And Joseph Deng, another brilliant talent, went to Ipswich Grammar School. He is another story. But Peter Boll continued his record-breaking spree, and we then saw him in Tokyo. He won his semi-final in 144.11, 
but in a tactical race, he missed the bronze medal in the final by 0.53 of a second. The gold medalist actually ran slower than Peter Boll ran in his heat. Why am I telling you this? Well, in my view, this whole story is disgusting and disgraceful. There were headlines worldwide on January 10 this year when Peter Boll was issued with a provisional ban for a positive drug test that he did in October last year. Now, rightly, Athletics Australia and Sport Integrity Australia, not sure where the integrity fits in, have been savaged by Peter Boll's American lawyer because we now learn that the B sample of the drug test has not validated the A sample. Don't start me on these flawed testing methods. But the point is this, no statement should have been made about the A sample until the B sample had been tested. Peter Boll's name and reputation were trashed. It was thought he was going to be the Young Australian of the Year. He was banned from training and running on any ground approved by Athletics Australia. Athletics Australia and Sport Integrity Australia, incompetent bureaucracies, made the A sample public, but provided no evidence to Peter Boll of the positive test. But they don't give up this mob. The Sport Integrity Australia now say that the matter isn't over, despite lifting the suspension on Peter Boll. And they say they'll continue to investigate whether any anti-doping rule violation has been committed when this young man has sworn over and over again of his innocence, an innocence which has been validated by the B sample. But the bureaucracy are going to continue to go after him. It is to be hoped that contemplated legal action being initiated by his lawyers will slow some of these people up. Needless to say, his ban at the time was front page everywhere. Not so today when the B sample confirms what Peter Boll has always said, he's never had anything to do with drugs. You see, you wonder why some young people grow to be disillusioned. By the way, as for the mullet, I guess it confirms that the mob who are worrying about Peter Boll are hopeless at promoting their talent. On Thursday of next week, thanks to Murray Plant, who does thankless work for athletes, at Lakeside Stadium in Melbourne, Rowan Browning will be competing against the American Fred Curley, the reigning world 100 metre champion and Tokyo Olympic silver medalist. And the Olympic 1500 metre champion will also be competing amongst other stars as part of the Chemist Warehouse Summer Series of Track and Field. Lakeside Melbourne, Lakeside Stadium Melbourne, next Thursday, February 23, 7 p.m. Pack the joint out, but spare a thought for Peter Boll. Last night, I raised issues in relation to the Perrottet government and its extraordinary and reckless economic management. I mentioned that last week, the half yearly budget review revealed the New South Wales government deficit would balloon from 2.8 billion to 6.5 billion, even though, quote, soaring coal royalties, the coal that Keane and Perrottet and their left wing mates hate, coal royalties delivered an 11.1 billion improvement in revenues all spent. Expenses grew by over 13 billion. Far from boasting about economic management, everywhere you turn, there are major problems. The solution to which apparently, to win an election, is to throw around and promise more borrowed money. I mentioned the Premier Perrottet is on record as saying that New South Wales has Australia's fastest growing economy. Nothing could be further from the truth. And it's not surprising when the principal component of economic management in New South Wales is to spend money. The only valid measure of economic strength is gross state product per capita. In other words, per head of population, how much are we producing? On the most recent figures, New South Wales is second last. 
Dominic Pirate, advised by the bloke Finkelstein, who presided over the Morrison catastrophe, says that it's important that the coalition win this election. And it seems that money is no problem. Four new metro lines in Western Sydney will be started under a re-elected coalition government. Now, that proposal has validity, but it'll be paid for by debt. Or is that why we have 40 kilometre per hour speed limits on some of Sydney's busiest roads? A gold mine for the government. One single camera alone at St Peter's on the six lane Princes Highway has gathered $4.7 million in 18 months. The opposition says drivers who've been stung by a draconian 30 kilometre per hour limit imposed in Liverpool should be refunded. But the government seems to think that raising revenue in any way, shape or form will help pay some bills, and there are plenty of them. The Spanish-led consortium building new passenger trains for New South Wales is claiming more than $730 million. Why? Well, we've just come out of that train strike, and to solve it, the government agreed to design changes, changes to carriages and driver cabins. So the cost of the new fleet of trains will blow out by more than a billion dollars. Is this economic management we're talking about? Last August, an analysis by Transport for New South Wales forecast the cost of foreign-made trains would surge by almost $827 million to $2.29 billion, and that excluded the cost of settling disputes. But don't worry about cost. The Perrottet government's throwing $160 million of borrowed money in a spending spree, bolstering Western Sydney's performing arts scene. No one is more supportive of the performing arts than I am. But where the hell is this money coming from? Western Sydney deserve better arts venues, but we don't have appropriate economic management to pay for them. Western Sydney needs more police. The police association say staffing levels in Western Sydney are a recipe for disaster. Some suburbs have been the backdrop of bloody gangland wars, yet those suburbs have some of the worst response times in the state. It's one thing to say, elect us again, the state needs us, but the record on so many fronts is woeful. Matt Keane, the Treasurer and Energy Minister, two portfolios that almost contradict themselves, is gung-ho about electric vehicles, saying they'll make up to 50% of new car sales by 2030. That is absolute rubbish. And he says he'll build 30,000 new charging stations. What's more, he's offering $3,000 rebates for the first 25,000 new battery, electric and hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. Can someone tell me what we do with the batteries when they have to be replaced? 500 kgs each? This is the new religion. But these nincompoops believe this stuff leads to a better environment. What, do you dig holes in the ground? to dispose of two and a half million tonnes of battery waste every year. I suggest that Matt Keane has no idea what he's talking about, but he sounds like Chris Bowen. Fewer than 0.5%, 0.5% of the cars in the United States are battery electric. Keane says electric vehicles will make up 50% of new car sales by 2030, 50%. Most scientific studies show that electric cars will increase in sales but they'll not take over the world. And by 2030, about 13% of the new cars in the world will be battery electric. But Matt Keane says electric vehicles will make up to 50% of new car sales within seven years. But the International Energy Agency says that by 2030, quote, if all countries live up to their promises, 
the world will have 140 million electric cars on the road, 7% of the global vehicle fleet. Housing, talk about economic management, home insurance customers in New South Wales, and Dominic Perrottet is saying you must vote for him, this other mob are irresponsible. Home insurance customers in New South Wales are paying almost three times the amount of state taxes paid by comparable people in other states. This is a levy imposed on insurance companies and collected as part of customer premiums, which adds about 18% to home insurance costs and 40% to business insurance. Good economic management. Well, home insurance policies across New South Wales cost between $1,500 and $2,000, some up to $3,000. But almost all Victorian home insurance policies cost between $1,000 and $1,500. New South Wales residents are being ripped off. But so are kids in Western Sydney. We learned yesterday that they're missing out on swimming carnivals because schools can't get charter buses. There's an unprecedented shortage of drivers. This is what Dominic Perrottet should be talking about instead of cashless gaming technology that won't be fully implemented until after 2028, but there's no business case for it. But he's promised to pay pubs and clubs one-off grants of up to $50,000 more borrowed money to invest in new income streams. Money everywhere being thrown at people. When his pub up, one pub owner said a $50,000 grant wouldn't be enough to fund a soundproof band room. How do you pay for this? this spiralling debt. Well, last Thursday, the Premier was asked if there were any plans to sell more assets, and he said, well, he wouldn't rule anything in or out. Privatising Sydney water was raised. That was Thursday. On Friday, when the Treasurer, Keane, was asked whether Sydney water would be privatised, he said, no. Do they know? But on Monday, the money kept flowing. 130 million to put air conditioning in all Western Sydney public school classrooms. Money to burn, or so it appears. There's a brand new hospital at Maitland, 470 million, opened in January last year. Doctors say they have no choice but to deliver, to deliver suboptimal care due to a lack of funding. The hospital, brand new, is in crisis. While Dominic Perrottet is boring people with cashless gaming cards with virtually no detail, just like Prime Minister Albanese is boring us with the voice, the problems in the New South Wales electorate just mount up. The number of people walking out of New South Wales emergency departments without being treated has doubled in 12 months. Chronic staffing shortfalls. Today we learn senior nurses in public hospitals are resigning in droves, suffering trauma and burnout from overwhelming workloads, leaving younger, less experienced nurses at greater risk of abuse from frustrated patients. But Dominic Perrottet is now promising to boost the number of nurses and doctors and allied healthcare workers are we entitled to ask why he hasn't already done this? Aren't battlers entitled to ask what is being done, where it matters, while all this money is being thrown around trying to bribe voters? Between July and September last year, according to Bureau of Health Information, 60,000 people left emergency departments before receiving treatment, up 87% on the same period in 2021. Only 57% of emergency department patients were treated in under four hours. And as I just said, the state's newest public hospital in Maitland, which opened in January last year, had the most emergency department walkouts, 2,481 between July and September. Campbelltown Hospital walkouts were up 160%, 2,000 
2,465. Fairfield Hospital, walkouts, up 147%. Northern Beaches Hospital, up 139%. Port Macquarie Base Hospital, up 191%. Are these acceptable waiting times for voters in New South Wales who are entitled to ask what is being done? Well, the metaphor of incompetence surrounding the Perrottet government is best exemplified by its attitude to coal. Australia's most valuable export commodity, $141 billion. But panicking about blackouts, the government has now decided to exercise emergency powers to tell coal producers how much they can export and how much they can't. Why? Well, they want coal now to guarantee energy supplies. This is a Liberal government nationalising virtually a component of domestic coal production. 80% of New South Wales coal is exported. Yet you won't get a new mine approved by the government. So if older mines are not replaced, what happens? Coal's a relatively cheap fuel source and it's reliable. The world will consume more than 8 billion tonnes of coal this year for one simple reason. The global economy demands growing amounts of energy to power it. But only today we learn that a returned coalition government will legislate to ban offshore coal, gas, mineral and petroleum production in New South Wales waters. The area in question is 50 kilometres off the coast. Not a word about how our energy needs will be met. Renewables, says an obsessed Matthew Keane. And the Greens confirmed today that they want to ban all new coal and gas projects. How is that different from New South Wales Treasurer Keane? The New South Wales government wants to close down coal mines when forecast coal royalties this year for New South Wales are $6 billion. That's more than it's costing to build Sydney's second airport. $6 billion in one year. This is a government in New South Wales which is putting energy security at risk and alienating our energy customers in Japan, South Korea and Taiwan. The Japanese Prime Minister visited Australia last year to meet government leaders to raise concerns about rising energy nationalism in Australia, rising government intervention, introducing price caps and keeping coal in Australia that was bound for our export partners. This might be called many things, but it's not economic management. And all this, while we had ferries and river cats and trams, the transport the taxpayer relies on in disarray. Foreign-made rolling stock. Why foreign-made? Because it's a bargain, according to the economic managers. It's not a bargain if it can't do the job. And then, of course, the boast that the government has built all of these roads, when in a sense that is true, the road infrastructure is magnificent. But we pay twice. We pay phenomenal tax and phenomenal tolls. I'm sorry, this is not responsible economic management. In the first Perrottet budget, since it became New South Wales last year, New South Wales was driven into deeper debt. Someone has to take a stand against this stuff. The starting point is to inform the electorate, which I'm doing. The only savings in last year's New South Wales budget were $32 million, not billion, $32 million in a budget of $95 billion. Remember when they were going to spend $25 million for a flag on the bridge? The budget was a $27 billion spending spree. The annual expenditure growth, growth was 26.5%, which is scandalous, and it's not liberal. I said at the time, and I'll say it again, there is no precedent in Australian politics for this level of extravagance. An increase in government spending for this financial year in New South Wales, an increase of 26.5%, and the spending goes on. 
Every day, as I've outlined, there is another spending announcement. Now, Gough Whitlam was regarded as the gold medalist of expenditure, going into debt, promises that couldn't be afforded. In 1974, his budget increased spending by 24.7%. People thought that's a record that'll never be broken. Treasurer Keane broke it, cheered on by Dominic Perrottet. Indeed, Treasurer Keane described the budget last year as a once in a generation reform budget for New South Wales. He said, we're betting on our kids. You bet you are. We're tying the debt albatross around their necks. But then Matt Keane's going to save the planet. So the budget had annual expenditure of 10 billion on so-called green energy programs to reduce global surface temperatures by decimal point naught, 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 and add whatever naught you like. Subsidise the construction of childcare centres, a federal responsibility. Oh yes, 800 million in self-determination funding for Aboriginal affairs. The spending goes on and on. Nothing to reform the education system. 15-year-old students are four years behind China in maths, three and a half years behind in science, a year and a half behind New South Wales school children of 20 years ago. Our TAFE colleges look like industry archaeology of the 1970s. A $6 billion blowout on the Chatswood to Bankstown Metro, a $475 million blowout on the first stage of the Parramatta Light Rail. Come on, is this economic management? $3 billion in subsidies for so-called green hydrogen, a gift to billionaires who talk this nonsense. $1.5 billion in subsidies for electric vehicles when most New South Wales voters can't afford one. $10,000 for music busker for staff morale at the Department of Primary Industries Zoom meetings. 56,000 for Treasury staff to go to a woke SBS inclusion course described by Mark Latham as, quote, basically propaganda, teaching them how to hate Australia. And that's before we start talking about this transport asset holding entity set up by Treasurer Berridge in 2015. Perrottet and Keynes were members of, and Keane were members of that cabinet. It was designed to artificially boost the New South Wales budget by billions of dollars by shifting rail expenses into a shell entity. There was an investigation into all of this, and it prompted the former Auditor General Tony Harris to call this outfit Transport Asset Holding Entity a vehicle of deception. So the government was panicked into writing down the value of this corporation, this vehicle of deception, by $20 billion, and then injecting billions of your money into the rail corporation at the end of 2021. Labor's shadow treasurer, Daniel Mookie, said the government had spent a fortune hiring spin doctors, about 34.5 million, over four years to, quote, cover up their mistakes, unquote. Look, no objective commentator could argue with that conclusion. On a range of fronts, this has not been a good government. The last thing Premier Perrottet should be doing is suggesting that running a state budget like a school tuck shop is something to be despised. For my money, it would be a better economic model than the absurdly spendthrift New South Wales government that we've seen and continue to witness. I'm saying to voters, be careful. This is your money. No one should be elected on promises that merely escalate the debt. The Labor leader, Chris Minns, is running on the slogan, a fresh start for New South Wales. I agree with the slogan. Who's going to deliver it? But there's an arrogance about this current government which asks us to believe that they should be allowed to keep going as they are. Someone has to say 
that what has been done is unacceptable and things have to be done better. If Dominic Perrottet wants the voter to elect a Liberal government, it should first start trying to implement Liberal philosophy. Well, I think you'd agree I've dished up last night and tonight a heavy dose of politics, but let's be honest, the political scene is anything other than encouraging and some tough, honest talk is needed. You'll get that here. But I just thought we'd briefly change direction because Australians love their cricket. People used to say that the captaincy of the Australian cricket team was more important than the prime ministership. Now, I wouldn't go that far. But in the first test against India in India, it was for Australia a debacle. Now, I've been in the international sporting arena. I don't get too pessimistic about one aberration. Nonetheless, the most telling aspect of the first cricket test was that India batted for parts of all three days and the match finished in three days. On the last day, Australia lost 10 wickets in a single session. That's two hours. Bowled out for 91. The lowest score for an Australian team on Indian soil. India won by an innings and 132 runs. An innings means that India only batted once. We lost 20 wickets. Nonetheless, cricketing history tells us that Australia has a big hill to climb. India have lost only two of 43 tests in the last 10 years at home. They are virtually unbeatable on their turf, which I might add, is perfectly manicured for their spinners. Well, in cricket, as in life, things can be turned around. When India were last in Australia, and I know conditions are different here, it was December 2020, Australia won the first test by eight wickets. When India were bundled out in their second innings for 36 runs. The scoreboard is an archival piece. Four, nine, two, naught, four, naught, eight, four, naught, and four. Josh Hazelwood took five for eight of five overs. So what is to happen in the second test on Friday of this week in Delhi? I thought I'd speak for many reasons to Shane Watson, one of the finest Australian all-rounders to represent Australia on 298 occasions. In fact, Shane was ranked the world's number one all-rounder in 2020 internationals for 150 weeks, including an all-time record of 120 consecutive weeks from October 13, 2011 to January 30, 2014. Now, this is the rub. Shane Watson has written and self-published an outstanding book, which should be in every school and every boardroom, because he went to Helen back at a critical stage of his cricketing career, what he would call the darkest hole of his life, but he turned everything around mentally, which gave him a new dimension on how to use his extraordinary talent. Now, this is true of so many people. Shane writes, and he's one of the most modest people I've ever met. In fact, his young son, Will, is often prompted to remind his dad how many times he got out and how he got out and <laughs> why he shouldn't have got out. But Shane writes that he sabotaged himself because he lacked the understanding and the tools to properly realise his remarkable ability. Now, the contents of this book are extraordinary. It is called Winning the Inner Battle, where he deals with skill set versus mindset, confidence, focus and overcoming fear, how mindset affects performance, communication and the power of it, the demon of expectation. He knows all about that. He says the brain is like a muscle. I've always said it's the most important muscle in our body. New Age Distractions is a chapter on that, social media. These are all chapters magnificently and very simply written. 
Anxiety affects performance. A chapter on that, so it does. Getting rid of your old habits. The value of self-critique. Magnificent book for everybody, not just for cricket, but he's written it, drawing on his cricket experiences. He joins me, Shane. Thank you for your time tonight. Congratulations. For our viewers, I'm putting up on the screen some of the comments on the screen by Ricky Ponting, who said, in part, this book will teach you everything you need to know to unlock your full mental potential. Not about cricket, Whoever you, whatever your potential is. Brett Lee. This book gives a simple process to be used in all aspects of life. And the great South African, Faf Du Plessis, says, this mental skills program is so relevant and very specific with what actually goes on in your mind before you face every ball. Shane, what brought you to write the book? Well, through my experiences and my education by um, a mental skills guru from the US that I was fortunate enough to be able to just, our paths crossed and we were intro I got introduced to him. And um, from the time that I worked with um, Dr. Jacques Delaire, uh, he, he finally gave me an understanding at 34 of exactly in really simple terms how your mind works, how to get out of your own way. And at that time, I was certainly getting in my own way in a big way to a point where I was on the brink of retirement just because I knew I wasn't performing anywhere near how I knew I could. So um, that education has led me to being in a fortunate place where I was then able to put these mental skills into practice through the last four years of me playing T20 leagues around the world. And I just know this information, it's so simple to understand. And I wish I knew this information as I was coming through as a teenager. Yes, yes. It would have helped me out in so many different ways yeah. around uh, reaching my potential, but also taking the worry and stress and anxiety out of what it takes to be as successful as you can. Yeah, I mean, that's why I've just said, I mean, this is not really about cricket alone, is it? I mean, when you're talking about confidence and focus and overcoming fear, just on that, is that something the current Australian team on Friday must be able to do in the face of this crushing defeat, overcoming fear? Oh, absolutely. The biggest, the biggest challenge of playing in India is not knowing exactly how the ball's going to react out of that wicket every single time compared to what it is in playing in different parts around the world. And the one thing that you need to eliminate when all the players are at their absolute best is when they've got no fear at all. They're just going, going out in the middle, just taking the game on, bringing the best version of themselves, which everyone, as we saw with Dave Warner in the Boxing Day test, you could see from ball one, he was at his absolute best. He was taking the game on with no fear whatsoever. And we see that version of Dave Warner in the second test and he if he brings that then he's got the best chance of being able to really dominate the test match like he has at certain I times agree. in his career. I agree entirely I mean I used to say to people forget about what the opposition are we know what we're going to do and attack is the best method of defence. Your point or one of the many points it's an outstanding book your point is that while there are always in life many ifs and buts in cricket and in life it's the mental strength you say that people need, and that's, for example, that Pat Cummins' team will now need, mental strength. Yeah, you just need to get out of your own way and understand how to get out of your own way to create the right mental environment for you so you can access all the skills that, you, that you've worked so hard to develop. And yes, it's, um, that's in the cricket field, but that's in, in all aspects of your life. Definitely. All the aspects that everyone's always performing, you want to bring the best version of you to every single moment of your life. Mm. Um, and by understanding what that right mindset is for you, it's critically important. But unfortunately, we're not really taught this. Um, we're not taught this at school. It should be one of the essential um, subjects that we learn at school is just understanding how to get out our own way to be able to perform at our best at exams,
systems or anything that we that we do in life. But um, I've just been very fortunate that I came across it at the latter part of my career career. Um, and now, you know, what my mission is to be able to pass this information on to as many people as possible. Magnificent. You've written this chapter, How Mindset Affects Performance. Now, that's true of everything in life, isn't it? I mean, people suffered, for example, not from the coronavirus so much, but from handling the way government addressed it. I mean, your business is shut down. You're a school kid and you can't go to school to be with your mates and enjoy face-to-face learning. And you're saying, well, this is where the mindset kicks in. So just on mindset and coming back to cricket, what would Travis Head's mindset be (laughs) having been left out of the team on the basis that his previous performances on the subcontinent were not up to scratch? Yeah, well, unfortunately, I think Travis, Travis Head's mindset would be hard to not shift to the fear of failure because what happens if I don't, if I play in this next te- next test match, if I don't score runs, then there's a good chance that I'm going to be dropped again because mm. that that decision to, to not yeah. pick Travis Head yeah. in the first test just came out of the blue for one of yes. our dominant players in the last two summers have got Australia at a lot of his performances got us out of a lot of trouble mm. the Ashes in particular and, and during the Australian summer that's just been yeah I mean he's so, stri- coming back to that earlier point he strikes me as the kind of aggressive attacking player that would take the fight to India I once had a, a because two of my uh, five eights in the Australian rugby side were injured I picked a young bloke out of nowhere I won't name who he was and at our first training session, he was frowning and he was frowning and dropping balls. And so I stopped the training. I pulled him aside. I said, what's the problem? And he said to me, oh, oh, I'm standing too flat. I can't. I said, who told you to stand there? I didn't tell you to stand there. I just told you to shift the ball to the middle of the paddock so that we could start the attack. But I'll tell you something. I'll tell you something. I don't care how many balls you drop on Saturday in the test or how many wickets or how many wickets, or how many tackles you miss, you'll be playing next Saturday. Now get out there and get into it. He scored an Australian record of points. It's that eliminating from the mindset, the thing you just talked about is fear. And what would the mindset of the selectors be? Because if they want three spinners and Cameron Green is to play, does that mean one of Pat Cummins or Mitchell Stark would have to be omitted? I mean, that's ludicrous, Cummins must play. Oh, he absolutely, he absolutely should. Pat Cummins should definitely play, and that's the thing. The Australian selectors have really made their own bed by that crazy decision to drop Travis Head to start with in the lead up to that first Test match, because that would have surprised majority of people within the team for them to be looking over their shoulder. Yes. And one of the most important things for the leaders of any environment is to be able to create a fearless environment. So people aren't thinking about, well, because the decisions that are being made, what if I don't perform, then gosh, I might, I might not be playing next week. Um, and by the decisions that selectors made in this first test, before the first test of Travis Head not playing, then there's going to be repercussions all the way through. And hopefully there's just a bit of calm. Yeah. There's, there's a bit of calm. The selectors have made their call on that on that first test with, test match with Travis Head. Uh, and there needs to be calm for this second test match, just mm. knowing that they can't just keep chopping and changing players no. because people just start looking over their shoulders, playing for themselves, and that's not the team environment no, that no, is no. performing do you at pick, their best. Do you, do you pick two off-spinners because you can't omit Todd Murphy now? Mm. Do you omit Nathan, Nathan, Nathan Lyon and pick a <laughs> left-arm finger spinner, Ashton Agar, or the 26-year-old who went to the Southport school, Matthew Kuhneman? I mean, these are dilemmas, aren't they? 
They are. You can see, and it's a, it was a good call from the Australian selectors to pick their two best spinners. Yes, they're two off spinners. Todd Murphy has come with huge wraps with his ability to be able to control where he bowls the ball, and he bowled very nicely in the first test match. Um, yes, it's not ideal with not having with having two bowlers, spin bowlers, bowling, turning it the same way, but you do need to pick your, your best two bowlers. Unfortunately, Ashton Agar didn't, the test match that he played in Sydney didn't, instill a lot of confidence with the way he bowled in that test match. Unfortunately, he didn't bowl anywhere near his best. So the selectors certainly would have been reluctant to play mm. him in the um, in that first test yeah, match. Yeah. But he's a bit of an all-rounder, though. He can bat and everything. And a really lovely chap, Ashton Agar. Now, this chapter, the brain is like a muscle, you say. How can we deplete our mental energy? Now, this is critical for young people, isn't it, making their way in life, because you've also got two chapters here. One is the demon of expectation. Now, you face that right throughout your cricket career. And there's another one, anxiety affects performance. Now, you've been down both those roads. <laughs> what are you saying to the young people and to parents out there? Yeah, the, the, the chapter around the brain is like a muscle is all around understanding that your brain is like a muscle and you've only got a certain amount of mental energy every single day. Um, to be able to access all the skills that you've got, to be able to tap into your unconscious mind, which is where all of your, uh, your talent, all that information that you have sits, you need to be able to have as much mental energy as you possibly can to be able to make decisions, to be able to pull and tap into that incredible skill set that you work so hard to develop. So by understanding that you need to have as much mental energy as possible, you need to understand how you deplete that. And uh, most of the time it's um, overstimulating your mind, whether that's yeah. through scrolling through social media, whether that's through gaming, whether that's through overthinking situations. Worrying. just worrying. Well, absolutely, overthinking situations and worrying. Yeah. Um, instead of actually understanding that you can redirect that thought, that script, that, uh, that little bird that's sitting on your shoulder, which you are actually in control of. And that's the one thing that once I understood that I'm in control of that little bird and that little script, that internal dialogue that's, that's always, that's always inside your mind, that you are actually in control if you want to take control, that redirecting your script away from the worry and the overthought mm. yeah. instead of just being present. And Definitely. what do I need to do right now to be able to bring the best version of myself to what I'm doing right yeah. at, the, at that moment? And there are so many kids out there that are worried, are anxious, mm. and this is why it's a book for you. Now, listen, I'm gonna have a shot at you here because you talk about mental strength. You ready for this? What about when you were in the one-day squad, you were, you love this, viewers. Have a look at him. He looks strong, tough, big fella, isn't he? He was in the one-day squad. He was touring England in 2005. This is not in the book. And he spent the night at Lumley Castle in County Durham. And the castle is believed to be haunted. You, you sook, got spooked and you spent the night sleeping on the floor in Brett's room. Mental strength? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, let, I let the script redirect to the wrong thing and I certainly let, <laughs> I'll have a mind to be in the wrong position. So, um, lessons learnt. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Then, of course, in your environment, you faced a lot of disappointment, primarily because of your body, mm. a lot of injuries, you're a big man and so on. And then early, the demon of expectation, mm. the mindset was affecting performance. Anxiety affects performance. Did you know, I think you alluded to this in an answer previous, but I'll ask you again. Did you know as much then as you know now as to how to handle all that? Oh, not at all. I, I had no understanding and coping mechanisms around just even something as simple as a demon of expectation. As soon as you set a really high expectation, for me it was getting 100. Um, and everything was 
around, based around me getting 100. So as I was getting closer to it, my mind moved forward to, oh, I'm nearly there. I'm nearly reaching, I'm nearly reaching that target instead of bringing it back to, okay, what do I need to do right now and what I have been doing up until this point? Uh, and there was many times mm. where I yeah. got out in the 90s yep. because my mind moved forward into I'm getting closer to what yes. my expectation, what my what, yes. what, I've, what goal I've set. That's it. I used to set the alarm. <laughs> I used to set the alarms off to get up and watch you make the hundred, and it didn't happen when I wanted it to happen. But on that point, I mean, you, this phenomenal one-day record you made 400s and 2450s. If you knew then what you know now, how many of those 50s do you think you could have converted into hundreds? I would have definitely been able to bat for longer periods of time. The one thing I was an absolute master at was burning through my mental energy um, and not understanding that your brain is like a muscle. I was always on. I never actually pulled my focus back to be on neutral. And that's the one thing that I didn't, I didn't understand that. I never got taught that you have to, in between balls, you really do have to switch off. Even in the lead up to the game, you have to switch off and have and maintain your mental energy. And or if not, actually replenish your mental energy. And I was incredibly good at getting to 20s to 50s because I was on all the time and then I'd, I was mentally fatigued. Mm. I'd make a mistake technically and then I'd go off the ground, beat myself up that I'm soft, I'm weak, I'm mentally, I'm mentally weak. And I'd go and just look at my technique instead of understanding that it, it, it was it was majority would just do. Yeah. I just burn out my mental energy Not and then I made a mistake. Yeah. Exactly. Nothing so. to do with technique. Now you're captain Australia in eleven matches, nine one days and one test. And you talk in the book about team environment, and we're looking here at boardrooms, classrooms, and all that sort of stuff. How in that team environment as the captain of the team, whomever he might be, the CEO, the chairman or whatever, how important is the captain to contribute to a positive team environment? The leaders are everything, uh, especially if the people under the leader aren't fully educated on mental skills and understanding that I can overwrite whatever's going on above me to be able to have just be in the right, have the right mindset at that moment in time. Leaders it's so integral for them to understand how to create the right mental uh, team environment, how to create a process-driven environment so people are just focused on what they need to do to bring the best version of them and just do it over and over again. Not being, not focusing on what might happen, not focusing on if you make a mistake, you'll be, you'll be gone. Um, and it's incredibly important for leaders to understand how important it is for them to be able to just create the right environment, the right language around a high-performing environment, which is all around, this is the plan, this is what we have to do, just do it over and over again. And if we do this, we give ourselves the best chance of getting the results we're looking for instead of the leaders who it's all Fantastic. around. You need these results mm. no matter what, and if you don't, you're gone. So people start getting worried and stressed people and everything watching, when they get... People watching this bloke are now saying, well, why isn't he running Australian cricket? That's a very important point. And we need people like this. Look, you can buy the book. It's Winning the Inner Battle. It is up on the screen, shanewatson.au, to buy your copy. We get one for your son, your daughter. Get one for the boardroom. Just before you go, uh, quick one. What changes should be made to the Australian team, and can we turn it around in Delhi? We certainly can turn it around. It's going to be a challenge because Delhi is a challenging place to be able to play. It's going to turn and it's normally a fairly lowish sort of wicket. Um, I hope Cameron Green comes in and he's able to... I, I'm just such a huge fan of Cameron Green. The more he plays, um, the better he's going to get for sure. Um, so I hope he comes in. He's going to be a little bit underdone after not playing for a while. 
Um, but I just hope they just keep the core. They've, the selectors have made a call in the first test. Then so keep the core of the team together. Correct. Because otherwise Correct. people just, again, people start looking over Correct. their shoulder. So you've picked, you've made a call mm. before the first test. Now stick with it. That's right. And be, and be confident that you've made the right decision before the first yeah. test. I used to say, you can't say a week ago, this is the best Australian <laughs> team and that's why we picked it. And we're putting it on the paddock. And then a week later you say, oh, well, this is now the best Australian team. You were either wrong then or you're wrong now. We'll wait and see. Friday it is in Delhi. Shane, great stuff. Tremendous stuff. There you are. That's the book. The winning, it's on your screen. They're winning the inner battle. ShaneWatson.au. Thanks for your time, Shane. It's great to chat to you as always, Alan. Thanks. There we are. Well, a further judicial inquiry headed by the former New South Wales Chief Justice Tom Bathurst is this week underway into the 25-year jail term handed down to Kathleen Folby, convicted in 2003 of the murder of three of her children, Patrick, Sarah and Laura, and the manslaughter of her first child, Caleb, 25 years. I think I've read everything about Kathleen Folbig. I should declare that I write to Kathleen Folbig to try to encourage her to keep up her strength and keep up the fight. I have visited her in jail. I repeat, I think I've read everything about her. There were four deaths, Caleb dead at 19 days in 1988, Patrick dead at eight months in 1991, Sarah dead at 10 months in 1993, and Laura dead at 19 months, all four found dead by the mother. Two had been declared to have died of SIDS. Patrick had been found at autopsy to have died of asphyxia, related to diagnosed epilepsy, but there were four deaths. Not a mark on any of the children to demonstrate that they had been abused by the mother. No scientific evidence that any of Kathleen Folbig's babies were murdered. But a view had been propagated by so-called scholars that one sudden infant death was a tragedy, two are suspicious, three was murder and four, well, they swooped. Kathleen Folbig has been in jail for 20 years. Way back in 2018, I read and repeated the evidence of Professor Stephen Cordner from the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine, who questioned the medical testimony that contributed to Kathleen's conviction. Professor Cordner is one of Australia's top forensic pathologists, and he argued there was no positive forensic pathology support for the contention that any or all of the children had been killed. Associate Professor Matthew Ord said, I think this is an eminently fatal case of myocarditis. Myocarditis is an inflammation of the heart muscle known to cause sudden death in some children. Associate Professor Matthew Ord said, quote, on the basis of the medical evidence alone, I think this case certainly needs to be re-examined carefully. Well, way back in 2013, 10 years ago, I interviewed the Australian researcher at Canada's University of British Columbia, Emma Cunliffe, who had investigated the cases of a lot of women who'd been sent to jail because of the deaths of their children. Kathleen Folbrook, she argued, was the only one still in jail. She referred me to one Dr. Alan Kaler, a forensic pathologist who investigated the death of Laura, the fourth child, at 18 months. He knew that a child her age would put up a fight and probably, not necessarily, leave signs of a struggle, particularly teeth marks on the inside of her lips. He said her lips and face were clear and there was nothing in the brain. He took out the heart and lungs and he found nothing. The bloke's a forensic pathologist. Laura was the last child to die. I've always argued the innocence of Kathleen Folbig. In 2021, 
almost two years ago, 76 eminent researchers, including two Nobel laureates and several Australians of the year, including the Queensland scientist, Professor Ian Fraser, said that new medical evidence about a mutant gene carried by two of the Folbig children creates, quote, a strong presumption that they died from natural causes. That is 76 eminent researchers. Another 14 international experts at the time signed a petition, making all up 90 top scientists, medical practitioners and science advocates calling on the New South Wales Governor Margaret Beasley to pardon the then 53-year-old Kathleen Folbig and immediately release her from jail, calling for an end to this, quote, miscarriage of justice. 90 top scientists. Other names on the petition included the president of the Australian Academy of Science, Professor John Shine, the Nobel laureate and former Australian of the Year, Professor Peter Doherty, the Tasmanian-born emeritus professor, Elizabeth Blackburn, a 2009 Nobel Prize winner. The petition in 2021 quoted, the executive prerogative of mercy is designed to deal with the failures of the justice system, such as this one. Ms. Folbig's case also establishes, it said, a dangerous precedent as it means the cogent medical and scientific evidence can simply be ignored in preference to subjective interpretations of circumstantial evidence, unquote. Professor John Starshine of the Australian Academy of Science said, quote, given the scientific and medical evidence that now exists in this case, signing this petition was the right thing to do. Australia's former chief scientist, Professor Ian Chubb said, expert advice should always be heard and listened to it will always trump presumption, unquote. The distinguished child and public health researcher and 2003 Australian of the Year, Professor Fiona Stanley said, quote, it's deeply concerning that medical and scientific evidence has been ignored in preference to circumstantial evidence. We now have an alternative explanation for the death of the children, unquote. The case against Kathleen Folbig was always circumstantial. I've said all along, no forensic evidence existed to demonstrate that Kathleen had smothered any of her children, let alone all four. This was a case where emotion was in the vanguard, science and the law were a long way behind. Indeed, the trial prosecutor of Kathleen Folbig, Mark Tedeschi QC, closed his address to the jury in this way, disturbing then as it should be now, in relation to the probable death from natural causes Mark Tedeschi said to the jury, quote, I can't disprove any of that, that is death from natural causes, but one day some piglets might be born, come out of the sow with wings on their back, and the next morning, Farmer Joe might look out a kitchen window and see these piglets flying out of his farm, unquote. Professor David Balding, the Professor of Statistical Genetics at Melbourne University, in something of an understatement said the pig analogy was, quote, incredibly unprofessional and pretty disgraceful, unquote. I'd be here all day documenting the scientific conclusions from world-renowned distinguished scientists, including some of the world's leading authorities on the genetic causes of unexpected death. Many concluded that a hitherto undiscovered inherited mutation known as CALM2G114R played a part in the deaths of Sarah and Laura. But when one of these distinguished cardiologists and world authorities, Professor Peter Schwartz, urged that the last inquiry called in August 2018 
by New South Wales Attorney General Mark Speakman into Kathleen Folbig's convictions be reopened, the request to Speakman was refused. In 2021, what was described then as unique in the annals of Australian criminal history, a petition endorsed, as I said, by 90 world acclaimed scientists called for the pardon and immediate release of Kathleen Folbig. To Speakman's shame, he ignored the petition. How you compensate an innocent and grieving mother for being locked up for 20 years is beyond my comprehension. The reason I visited and wrote to Kathleen Folbig was because I read the scientific material. The jury had another story pitched to them. But it revisits the long acclaimed aphorism, doesn't it? That in a court of law, you'll always get decisions. You would always get justice. Well, justice may be around the corner. As I said, another inquiry has resumed this week. More experts focusing on her diaries, which in the trial that convicted her were cited as damning evidence. The 2019 inquiry put emphasis on the diaries, but now experts such as paediatrician Joanna Garstang, whose research focuses on families dealing with SIDS, will reportedly tell the inquiry that Kathleen's diaries do not reflect an admission, but instead, quote, self-blame as part of a mother's journey, unquote. One of the people lining up to give evidence in support of Kathleen Folbig will be the Teal Independent MP, Monique Ryan, the lady who defeated Josh Frydenberg at the last election. She's a paediatric neurologist. She also gave evidence in the 2019 inquiry. She'll apparently give evidence again on February 21, according to the hearing schedule. Dr. Ryan wrote a report for the 2019 inquiry into the death of Patrick, one of Kathleen Folbig's sons, who died at eight months old. And Dr. Ryan gave evidence that a medical episode the infant suffered at four months may have been an undiagnosed epileptic episode that had an unknown genetic basis. Monique Ryan's report said that only next generation DNA sequencing could uncover the quote, possible genetic epileptic encephalopathy or cardiac genetic condition that le unquote, that left Patrick blind and racked by seizures at the end of his life. The latest inquiry is being chaired by the former New South Wales Supreme Court Chief Justice Tom Bathurst. One further point, I remember Dr. Alan Kaler, the forensic pathologist, saying that back in the morgue in 1999, when he examined Laura a few weeks after the autopsy, and while looking through a microscope at slides of Laura's heart, he believed he found a potential natural cause of death. He saw clumped up lymphocytes, white blood cells, meaning Laura was suffering from myocarditis, precisely what Associate Professor Matthew Ord was saying. As I said, myocarditis is this inflammation of the heart muscle known to cause sudden death in some children. At the time in 1999, Dr. Kaler took the slides to Professor John Hilton, his boss, who had performed an autopsy six years earlier on Laura's sister, Sarah. And Dr. Caleb said that Professor Hilton commented, quote, a lot of people get myocarditis and don't know they have it. They get better, but it has enormous potential for fatality, unquote. Myocarditis could have killed all four children. And that was the point Emma Cundliffe made to me when I interviewed her. I also raised with Emma Cundliffe evidence asserted by the Crown against the mother, Kathleen Folbig, that all of the children were warm to touch when found dead by their mother. Yet ambulance officers and documentary records suggest the two of the children who died at night, Caleb and Sarah, were cool to touch when attended by emergency services. 
The possibility that the bodies were cool undermines the Crown's theory that Kathleen Folbig killed each child and then immediately raised the alarm. You'd have to be a person with a hard and cold heart not to imagine the damage done to an individual who's been in jail for 20 years but knows in her heart of hearts that she's innocent. In my last correspondence in December, knowing that I was in hospital, Kathleen sent, quote, health vitality vibes to me and said to me that, quote, we are now all armed with scientific facts. You can't make that stuff up, even though I've been accused of just that evil genius that I'm supposed to be, unquote. I offered Kathleen some compliments about her ability to hang in there. She wrote quite sadly, quote, compliments make me nervous but stamina, resilience, stoicism, I seem to have developed over the last 20 years. No compensation, she said, would ever help or repair all the damage that's been done, not only to me, but to all of those whose lives have been consumed, trying to help me, unquote. She ended by saying, take care, my friend. Thank you for reaching out. Stay well. Whew. Unbelievable, isn't it? Stay well, she said. And you never know, Alan, I may just one day get to give you that hug of hello and thanks. Who would swap places with Kathleen Folbig? The very talented, well-researched and highly informed Queensland Senator Matt Canavan has been putting the Reserve Bank governor through the hoops today in a Senate estimates hearing in Canberra. I should point out that Matt Canavan has an honours degree in economics from Queensland University, which is more than can be said for Dr Chalmers. Senator Canavan joins me. Matt Canavan, thank you for your time. One question you asked Governor Lowe led to a reference by him to making the pie bigger, the economic pie. In what you heard today, is there any evidence that either the Reserve Bank or the Albanese government are capable of making the pie bigger? Because as you and I have said, if the population increases and the economic pie stays mm. the same size, then we're all poorer as Australians. That's exactly right, Alan. Look, uh, in fairness to the governor, he doesn't have a lot of power to make that pie bigger, so to speak. He only has the one lever controlling interest rates, and that really is just about how much money is floating around. And inflation happens when there is too much money chasing too few goods. So if we're not producing enough, we're not productive enough, and we keep the same money supply, you're going to get inflation. The value of your dollar will fall. Uh, conversely, if we just increase the money supply, which we have in government spending the last few years, and don't produce more, we'll have the same result. Uh, but I know the governor today couldn't be too critical of the government. That's not his role. But he made it very clear that it would be helpful for him. It would help interest rates to stay lower than they would otherwise have to be if we had a government focused on increasing our productivity, increasing the pie, as yeah. you say, but uh, helping the economy gain strength. But everywhere, and we once everywhere had governments who did that by removing red tape, mm. removing red tape, removing restrictions, and now we have a government that shuts down coal mines, uh, wants to nationalise, effectively nationalise the gas industry and re-regulate labour markets. Well, mm. that's only going to lead to one outcome, and it's called the 1970s, where we had crushing inflation. It eventually required 18% interest rates to get it under mm. control, and I don't think anyone wants to go back yeah, there. Yeah, and I mean, you've got also government spending, which is out of control as well. You raised the issue to the Reserve Bank Governor that in the past year, to take that point up that you've just made, the Albanese government has re-regulated labour and now energy markets. And you asked Governor Lowe, quote, if removing restrictions on the economy helps subdue inflation, wouldn't reintroducing restrictions 
in these very important markets add to inflationary pressure. How did he handle that? Well, as I said, it made him a little bit uncomfortable because he uh, he's up for reappointment later this year, Alan, and uh, like all of us, he probably wants to keep his job. So uh, going hard and criticising the government is probably not the best way to help with that endeavour for him, uh, as the government is the one who appoints him. So it keeps it allows him to keep his job or not. But he said he didn't so want he was to be sheepish. It, but he, does, he did agree with that general principle. Yeah, but I mean, he did agree with the general principle that re-regulating, putting more restrictions on, is going to cause more inflation. See, what I don't understand, he said he didn't want, and not on, on more than one occasion, he said he didn't want to be drawn into the specifics of IR legislation. But firstly, this stuff was never raised during the election, and now there are wholesale changes. I mean, multi-employer bargaining. How does that affect the economy? Uh, you know. The bloke, if he's going to be setting interest rates, he has to know something about the impact these changes are having on the economy. But as you say, he's up for renewal and he doesn't want to attack the government. Well, look, it is unfortunate. As I said, I'm not, I'm not going to go. I think the greater villain here is the government and their, 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 their introduction of more red tape, unrestricted government spending and the continuing of throwing the governor under the bank for their own failings. That's the major villain in this piece. But Dr Lowe and lots of other... Uh, of, uh, of our fearless or once fearless bureaucrats here in Canberra are indicative of a uh, of a unfortunate spread of mediocrity where there's not the same strength that I've found in previous generations of public servants mm. to forcefully put an opinion, to forcefully put their views. We mm. had great men. Ed Chan was one who wrote a piece in the mm. Financial Review this week. Carrie Banks used to head up the Productivity Commission. John Fraser, even in his own way, they were all they weren't shrinking violets. They mm. they were willing no. to have the courage to put their views out there. And sometimes you might not agree with them, but at least they weren't all always trying to uh, to soften their blows. No, he talked. Uh, uh, and so this is what I think is a problem. We don't talk We don't talk plainly anymore. We always no, try and no. wrap our words in, no. in, in weasel oh. and bureaucraties. We're a nation of one we get, view. The government's get very poor we're, advice. We're a nation of one opinion. A nation of one opinion. And if you don't believe in vaccination, if you don't believe in climate change, then you're completely demonised. Mm. I mean, Lowe talked about the need, to, I quote, to invest in people, in technology and in energy. Now, doesn't it depend on what kind of investment you're making? When we're currently throwing billions of dollars at renewable energy, bribing people to buy electric vehicles, and investment in coal and gas is being crippled. I mean, only yesterday, the Greens demanded of the government yeah. that coal and gas exploration end. And you've got Keane in New South Wales saying, yesterday, a returned coalition government in New South Wales will legislate to ban offshore coal, gas, mm, mineral mm. and petroleum production in New South Wales waters when the area in question is 50 kilometres from the coast. How does this secure cheaper energy, which improves dramatically productivity and reduces inflation? Well, you're absolutely right to highlight. I think that was the, one of the key uh, statements the governor did make today, uh, that he, he clearly said that uh, to control inflation, to have a productive economy, we need uh, to have affordable and reliable energy. Keep in mind, I, I think sometimes what, what people in Canberra don't, don't say and what they do, and the governor did not say renewable energy. He did not use that adjective. Uh, it would have been free to him to do that. He would have been under a lot of pressure too, but he didn't. And and I think he was sending a at least coded message there that we have to invest in things that work in reliable and affordable energy. The other point to make in my discussion with the governor is he accepted the fact that the removal of Lots of gas uh, from Europe, from uh, Vladimir Putin's Russia, has caused a massive impact in inflation in Western countries. Now, if the actions of Vladimir Putin to restrict gas flows uh, causes inflation, how much more of an impact 
people of B when our own governments do it Correct. to us in our own country. Correct. What what the Paratay government is doing by locking up Pepper Levin in in economic terms Correct. is no different than what Vladimir Putin is doing in Europe. A Obviously, uh, I don't condemn the Paratay government for invading other countries, but in terms of energy, they are denying the use of energy yep. to free and Western countries in the same manner that Vladimir Putin is doing. And that is causing enormous economic pain. It's also making it a lot tougher to defend free and open countries because we are now at a massive economic disadvantage relative to China and India who are, who are, who are living off cheap Russian gas and oil now and, and can uh, pull our pants down because of it. So yeah, we need to focus uh, back again on developing energy resources in our own country, in our own backyard. That yeah. is the solution. Yeah, I mean, using our coal, Asia using our coal to have cheap electricity for their citizens, and we're being denied that here. You raised with the Reserve Bank Governor the fact that, and I quote your words, one of the potential consequences of the tough decisions you are making, you said to the Governor, is that it may force some businesses to the wall. And that will, you said, of course, lead people to lose their jobs. Has the Reserve Bank, you asked, looked at what will potentially impact on bankruptcies. Now, I thought the low answer was evasive. How did you find it? Yeah, look, I, I, I mean, I, I imagine the government doesn't want to spook people or spook markets, so you sort of expect some sort of evasionist in these sort of answers. He did accept that there would likely be an increase in bankruptcies because of interest rates going up. Uh, look, I accept Alan, he doesn't want to necessarily go through a chapter in verse. And he, look, he, he, how much this will happen will just be speculation. I'm an economist by background. background. Um, uh, any economist that tells you they can predict the future, well, uh, they are no better uh, than an astrologer. They really yeah. can't and they don't but know. But he did so acknowledge. Just don't know. But did we do know there's going, to be, there's going to be an impact from these uh, decisions. Yeah. I recognise I'm not going to be like the government and play this stupid blame game and 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 suggest naively suggest as somehow an easier way there is not unfortunately we've got ourselves into a huge mess with the ridiculous amount of spending we responded to in covid uh and now the actions of other western countries to shut down their own energy systems because of net zero emissions that mess means we have to make tough choices the longer we defer these tough choices the harder it is going to get for everybody and so, yes, uh, interest rates are going to have to be higher than they would otherwise be unless we turn our back on net zero. This mm -hmm. is one thing I didn't quite get to today, Alan, but the points I'm making about energy, if we wanted to, to have a disinflationary effect, if we drop net zero emissions and develop our own economies, that is the way. That is the easy way, if you like, mm -hmm. out of this mess. But in the absence of that, interest rates are going to have to go up. Mm. You asked him about, was he aware that in these policy settings there is a risk and he acknowledged there was a risk, and you retorted that if there is a risk, which there is, a risk that some businesses will fall, you asked, how important is it then to have flexible labour markets in that environment, these are your words, such that businesses can respond to the changes that are caused by a higher interest rate environment. Now, he then said that, quote, if the business environment is uncertain, businesses should have flexibility. Matt, Senator Canavan, does business have flexibility under an Albanese Bowen government? Well, it's gotten a lot worse for businesses out there over this past year. The government's been very anti-business. As you alluded to earlier, they have certainly not been elected on that mandate. They said nothing about no, no. multi-employer bargaining, bringing back effectively the industrial relations regime that existed before Paul Keating. That's what they've done. Uh, the labour market regime we had in place 
for since since the Hawke Eating government has been relatively flexible, uh, allowed businesses and workers to negotiate in a ha- relatively harmonious way, while still keeping minimum protections for vulnerable people. There, it, it worked. We. It's not like the last. 20 or 30 years has been a garden of roses in terms of the economy in our region. We had the Asian financial crisis, we had the dot-com uh, crisis, we had September 11, of course, the GFC bigger than all. And the Australian economy and the labour market sailed through all of it. We didn't have a recession. We had a lot of change, a lot of upheaval, a lot of change, but businesses and workers were able to respond to that change and minimise the pain. What I worry about with the upheavals we're seeing in the world economy now mm. is that these these rigidities that the Labor Party has introduced in our economy in terms of uh, uh, making it harder for businesses and workers to negotiate agreements will make it much harder when there's more shocks to come on energy or geopolitics uh, mm. in the future and would cause a much, much greater fallout, yeah. possibly a recession well, of course. in this country. Now, if that happens... That'll be at the feet of this Labor government who have no mandate to make these changes and are certainly not acting on the best economic advice of the likes of... No, I mean, Chalmers is going to remodel and remake capitalism. I've never heard of such infantile... I call him the Greta Thunberg of economics. You asked Dr Lowe whether or not we should be focusing on what we are doing, to come back to the point you've made, to our own energy markets and how this impacts on inflation. You're talking about microeconomic reform. And he said over time expansion of capital stock that produces cheap, reliable energy will help. To reinforce the point you've just made, Matt Canavan, aren't we going in the opposite direction? Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm sure Governor Lowe wouldn't say that openly, but we we absolutely are. We, we, We have, we've got to be very clear to people out there that this country, Australia, has invested four times the amount of solar and wind energy in the last few years than other countries have, uh, than Europe, than North America, in per person terms. So four times more. Now, we are told, we're constantly told by this government and some of the other self-appointed experts around them, that renewable energy is the cheapest form of energy out there. Well, if that was so, why is it that the country that is uh, setting records in installing this so-called cheap energy, ending up with some of the highest power bills in the world. I mean, Alan, people's power bills have gone up by about $1,000 already in the last few years. They're possibly due to go up by another 1000 on the projections we see. Uh, this is the result of investment in energy systems that do not work, that do the exact opposite of what Philip Lowe was environment, mm. advising on, on cheap and Absolutely. reliable energy. Renewable energy is definitely not reliable, mm. and it's proven not to be cheap because everywhere where it's installed at a large amount, ends that, that mm. area ends up with higher power prices. Yeah. And yet we've seen in recent months investments in Queensland and Victoria deferred as a result of the government's intervention in the energy market. You asked that given that those investments won't proceed, and then we had this Clive Palmer mine in Queensland turned down only last week, you said, how much will the impact of lower energy flows in Australia have on inflation? I've used the banana analogy, Matt. I mean, when you have a cyclone in North Queensland, the banana crop gets wiped out, then Mm. you've only got bananas from Coffs Harbour. So you go to the supermarket and the banana price, because of uh, a lesser supply uh, or lower flow, to use your words, uh, suddenly the banana price goes through the roof. It's exactly the same with energy. You take certain components, eh? It's exactly the same, Alan. It's supply and demand. Uh, uh, Most kids would understand it. If the supply of something dries up, the price of it uh, will go up with it. And uh, that's exactly what we're seeing in this country. We're already seeing that because we do have some shortages of gas at certain times. Well, he answered your question. He answered your question. Gas station fire up. He answered your question by saying he didn't have an expertise 
in this area, his words, and quote, hopefully there is more investment somewhere else. But Matt, look, I, I understand the problems with Dr. Lowe, and I he's got to be got very confused discreet. there. I'm but, not, but yeah, if, I'm not sure what he meant by that. But, no, uh, but uh, I mean, anyway, if the I bloke, go, I didn't want to go down that rabbit hole because I no, had a little bit of time. But I just ask you this question: If the bloke, if the bloke is jacking up in interest rates to drive down inflation, shouldn't he have some expertise in the factors that are creating inflation in the first place, namely energy policy? Well, as I said, Alan, I do think the bigger villain is Jim Chalmers. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and I do like your description definitely. of Greta Thunberg of politics. He's uh, at about that level of economics. But, uh, but um, yeah, the, the governor here got himself a bit tripped up. And as you say, like, it should just be something that a first-year economic student understands about supply and demand. He doesn't need to be an expert in, in energy markets or know the difference between a petajoule or gigajoule to understand that the lower, the lower supply of something will increase the price. That is what we're seeing uh, in this country. There's only one answer that will deliver relief to Australian families over long term, and that is to increase the supply of Australian energy resources. That includes coal, gas. Yeah, it includes renewables where it works. Uh, but uh, focusing on just that latter one, as we have been, leads to disaster. We're on that track right now. Maybe we're not quite uh, to energy hell just yet, uh, but we're certainly in purgatory and we need to start uh, paying a penance soon uh, if we're going to get through the pearly gates oh, and bring yes, cheap, God. reliable power back to the Australian Well, listen, listen, we've run out of time, but I must have you back on. I mean, the other corollary of all of this is this obsession and dishonesty, I might say, with electric vehicles. I mean, and you've raised this, we won't canvas it here tonight, you've raised this point many times. Look, thank you for your time. We must have you back though. These are very critical port, uh, matters of national importance where daily the public are being fed with untruths. You don't get untruths here. Good to talk to Thanks, you, Matt. Alan. Thanks, mate. Thank you How good is that bloke? How good is that bloke? Senator Matt Canavan, he's 43 years of age one of the most prominent figures in Australian politics because he's got brains and he's unafraid to say what needs to be said. Before we go tonight, you'll recall last night I spoke about the housing and rental crisis. You may remember the famous 1997 Australian film, The Castle. It put a smile on the face of millions of Australians and was effectively a love letter to the Australian dream of home ownership. Very few Australian families looking to buy a home in this country at the moment are smiling. Looking back on the film, you can see how much this country has lost its way. Take the home of the castle's protagonist, Daryl Kerrigan. Back in the late 1990s, Daryl's home, a humble three-bedroom weatherboard home that sat right next to Melbourne Airport, came in at $70,000. In June last year, the exact same property is now estimated to be worth $1.24 million, an increase of 1,000% in real terms in 25 years. Young Australians have copped it. In the early 1980s, home ownership rates among 25 to 34-year-olds peaked at 61%. The most recent census data shows that the figure has dropped to below 45%. It's hardly surprising to see why. In 1975 Sydney, it took about four times the median household income to buy a home in Sydney. So if your family earns, say, $10,000 a year in 1975, you could buy a home for around $40,000, four times your income. Today, with a median house price of around a million dollars, that figure is 12 times household income. And even then, you ask how many people are on 100,000 a year? If they're not, what can they buy? This is why young Australians are being forced to rent, and even then rent is too expensive for many. In the last year, rents in Australia have gone up by over 10%, a record increase. Wages have gone up 
by less than 3%. What is to blame for this mess? Well, one of the reasons is that Australia, I made some of the points last night about land costs, but Australia has added over 400,000 people to our population last year, most of whom flocked to our major cities as jobs continue to disappear in our regions and our rural infrastructure crumbles. And we can expect even more people to rock up as international students return to our universities and crowd out the market for school leavers and young workers. So you ask, is this fair? Who's looking after our own? For too long, our politicians have used immigration to artificially pump up our economic growth and property prices. And now the tide is turning. Interest rates are now on the rise. People have had enough. See, for too long, we were told property prices would never come down. We were told by the Reserve Bank Governor, Philip Lowe, that he expected interest rates to stay at record lows until 2024. Well, now the cat is out of the bag. Mortgage holders are now paying 50% extra on their monthly repayments due to the latest rate hikes, rate hikes, and many will have to sell only to find the selling price of their home is less than the purchase price. And renters can't find a rental property in our major cities due to a record-breaking shortage of supply. Meanwhile, our politicians continue on, making empty promises and fatuous remarks, but offering nothing that remotely resembles a solution to this problem. The first solution is supply. If there were tens of thousands more homes on the market, the price would fall. If more people were able to afford a home, fewer would want to rent. Rental prices would fall. It appears no one in Canberra understands that simple truth. Well, that's it from me for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. Tell your friends. And it is all on the ADH app on your smart TV. It's plonked there right next to YouTube and Netflix. All my editorials and interviews. Tonight's program will be on your podcast app at 6am tomorrow morning. But I'll be shortly doing another entirely different podcast and we're putting that together at the moment. Don't forget, you can tell me what you think and ask your questions and I'll try to fashion a response. Email me, alanjones at adh.tv. Thank you for being with us. You're watching ADH, the home of fair income, non-woke opinion. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.